Last Sunday, we spoke to you for a few minutes about the name, the titles of Jesus. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God and the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. This is another one of those beautiful names, beautiful titles for Jesus. Names are special things, meaningful. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. Proper names can be special, but what is sometimes even more meaningful is a, a, a name <coughs> that, that develops into an impressive-sounding title. You know, you can turn a mediocre, even a, even a kind of a yucky job into a position that when someone hears about it, they think they, they might hear your job title and say, wow, that's, that's really something. You could have the title, you could tell people you are in, an environmental collection specialist. And people might hear that and think, wow, that's really something. This certainly sounds a lot better than telling them that you're the garbage man. You know, we're glad for the garbage men, aren't we? I am, yeah. I heard a story about a, a city where the garbage men went on strike. And people were trying to figure out how to get rid of their garbage. That would be a real problem, wouldn't it? One man came up with a brilliant solution. Every time he had garbage he needed to get rid of, he put it all in boxes and gift-wrapped the boxes and drove down to a certain part of the city and left the gift-wrapped boxes sitting in his car with the windows down. And every time he came back to his car, he found that his garbage had been collected. <laughs> oh, goodness. Some titles can bring you warmth and just make you feel really special. When I hear my children say, Dad, and, and a lot of times there, there is a, uh, in the new little ones, the younger ones, it's, it's a question of whether or not they're going to say Mama or Dada first, and usually it's Mama. And so data comes a little bit after that. And, but when those little ones look your way and respond with your name, the, the name that they know you by, dad, daddy, something special about that, something that warms your heart. And today we look at one of those titles of Jesus that makes me want to say, wow, when I read these words, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, first of all, Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel. Matthew, in the first chapter of his gospel, records the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of that promise, that promise from Isaiah had a short-term 
fulfillment, but also a longer range fulfillment, the long range fulfillment being in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We should all pause for just a moment and really try to absorb the import and the impact of that idea that Jesus is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. And as we pause and think about that, it should move us to say, wow, God is with us. He is our Emmanuel. He is not the clockmaker. You know, that's the, the deistic vision or, or view of God in his identity, that, that he is the cosmic clockmaker, that he somehow got this universe started and wound it up like a clock, and then he is off somewhere in the distance, not paying attention, not interacting, but he's just sort of letting the world go on its own. There was a very popular song back in the early to mid-80s that said, God is watching us from a distance, from a distance. Oh, friends, God is not watching us from a distance, but He is a God who comes close. He is a God who comes near. The prophet Isaiah tells us in another of his writings that he is seated high and on a throne. He is a God who inhabits eternity, but he also dwells with him who is of a lowly and a contrite spirit. Like one black preacher lady that I remember hearing from God's Bible school. She was from the inner city of Cincinnati, and she was sharing one uh, chapel service, and uh, she said, God sits high, but he looks low. And I'm so glad that he is a God who reaches down to us. He is our Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, our Emmanuel, first of all, in the sense that he is God incarnate. He is God incarnate. That word incarnate or the incarnation is a simple way of saying that he is God become flesh. John chapter 1, we read these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then on down in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is astounding to think and contemplate on everything that the Bible tells us is true about God. <clears throat> we read the scriptures and we understand that God is a holy God. 
Isaiah chapter 6 records for us the vision uh, that Isaiah had of God on his throne and his train filled the temple and the, the uh, angelic beings, the seraphim, were there and they were continually calling out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And as they called to one another in worship of the holy God, the the foundations of the temple trembled with their voices. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. There, the psalmist in Psalm 139 says that there is nowhere that we can get away from God's presence, nowhere we can escape from Him. He is not only omnipresent, but He is omniscient. He is a God who is all-powerful, Psalm 139, verse 1, a God who knows everything. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There is something about it that, uh, uh, about God, by definition, that the person who, who is able to think through it understands that God is, is perfect, He is complete in and of Himself, He alone is responsible for His existence. I mean, some of these concepts, these ideas are just beyond what our minds can understand. I read about one theologian who uh, was uh, taking some kind of an exam, and, and uh, he said on that exam he was given one question that said, God is perfect. Explain. And uh, he said the only question that he could think of that might be more difficult is to define God and give two examples. Uh, but he said the answer that he came up with to explain God's perfection, God's holiness, is that God is the only being that exists who has the reason for his existence within himself. You think about the identity that God gave to, uh, to Moses when Moses asked God, who will I tell the Israelites has sent me? And God told him, you, sell, you tell them, I am. He is the eternal and the self-existent one. All of us and everything that exists has the reason for our existence outside of ourselves. God has the reason for His existence within Himself. He is self-existent. As God, He is eternal. He is eternal, Psalm 90 in verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before anything ever came into existence, God was already in existence. And when this world passes away and everything in it, and we're all turned into dust, God will still be in existence. He is the eternal one. As God, He is omnipotent, the all 
powerful one. Revelations chapter 19. Revelations chapter 19 and verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. He is all-powerful. All of these things that we can read and understand about God, and in fact we understand, defines God. It's God by definition. You understand that God is not a, a proper name, but God is kind of a generic name. The proper name for the God of the Bible and the God of the Christian is Jehovah. And, and most people understand that, by, that God, by definition, is the almighty, the all-powerful one, the, the supreme being. And he is beyond what our minds can comprehend. So what is amazing to me is to think that this God and all of these things that are true about God, to, to think about all of that, have all of that in the back of your mind, and then to read these words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that this almighty all-powerful, eternal God wrapped Himself in human flesh, stepped out of eternity and into the timeline of history to become one of us, to live the human existence, to become our Emmanuel and everything that we understand to be true about God was true about Jesus until he stepped out of eternity and into history and confined himself to human flesh. Someone has written this little work of poetry. A bald red head, a puckered face, hands blindly wandering into space, a wee faint smile, a stalwart squall, and yards of clothes to hide it all. Yes, that's a baby. A bunch of sweetness full of bliss, a thing to cry, a thing to kiss, a blessing sent straight from above, a pound of care, a ton of love. Now that's a baby. Babies are Yes, sweet and cuddly and sometimes beautiful. Uh, a good friend of mine said, he said, people talk about how beautiful their newborns are. He said, I've never seen a beautiful newborn. He said, they're always red and wrinkly. And, and uh, he said, people want to show me their new babies. And... Uh, he said, I'll just smile. He's a pastor, too, by the way, so you, that puts you in an awkward position. He said, I just smile at him and say, now that's a baby. <laughs> but as sweet and cuddly and sometimes we, according to your point of view, beautiful, your little babies can be, they are also pretty noisy 
and dirty and smelly sometimes. And quite honestly, friends, this evening, quite frankly, combine everything that you know about babies with everything that you know about God and tell me if you can figure out how the incarnation makes sense. That God would willingly come to earth as a baby is simply beyond comprehension. Winston Churchill described Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's also a good description of the incarnation. That God became flesh. Jesus is God incarnate. There are many people who would argue this point. There are some who will say Jesus was not really God incarnate and he did not claim to be. He was not really Emmanuel. Um, They just simply aren't reading their Bibles accurately. Jesus clearly claimed to be God come in the flesh multiple times throughout the Gospel of John. He makes numerous I am statements. One of those we find in John chapter 8 and verse 58. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And they clearly understood what he was claiming to be. He was claiming an equal status with God, the Father, with Jehovah. And verse 59 says, They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus claims to be one with the Father. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, he claims to be everywhere present. The end of The Gospel of Matthew, he leaves us with the promise, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. John chapter 17, verses 5 and verses 24, he claims to be eternal. Also, throughout his life and throughout his ministry, he he operates performing actions that only divinity can accomplish. For example, he forgives sins. He raises the dead, and he promises to give eternal life. Yes, Jesus knew who he was and who he claimed to be. He was God come in the flesh, and he provided the ultimate proof of his identity as God in human flesh. After he went to the cross and gave himself there as a final sacrifice for sin, he then laid in a borrowed tomb, and the scripture tells us it was a borrowed tomb. One preacher said he knew it was a borrowed tomb because he knew he wasn't going to need it for that long. And the third day he came out of the grave alive forevermore. Jesus is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. But also notice, secondly, that Jesus is God with us, our Emmanuel, in the sense that he came to have a relationship with us. It's one thing to say that God came to this world. He came to this earth. But it's something else entirely to say that he came to have a relationship, a personal relationship with you and with me. John chapter 17, we know as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this prayer begins, verse 1 
Jesus begins praying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the biblical understanding, the, the biblical definition of eternal life is something more than just life that goes on forever, but it has a relational component, a relational aspect that eternal life is to know God through Jesus Christ. Jesus says that God has given him authority over all flesh. This authority was given so that he could grant eternal life, and eternal life means knowing God through Christ. You see, Jesus came to be Emmanuel in much more than just a general way. He came to be Emmanuel personally. He wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us as individuals, and there's one chapter in the Bible that expresses this truth more clearly than any other passage in Scripture. We find that in Luke chapter 15. In this chapter, we read some stories that Jesus tells about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. You see, the Pharisees had been criticizing Jesus because of the amount of time that he was spending interacting with sinners and eating with them. So Jesus told these stories to demonstrate God's attitude toward sinners. The first story of Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7, about the lost sheep, the shepherd with 100, and he has 99 in the fold and realizes as he's counting that there is one missing, and so he leaves the 99 to go out and find that one that's missing. That shepherd knows that the sheep that is lost and separated from the flock will never find its way back on its own. That being the case, he goes on a rescue mission to find that one lost sheep and bring it back safely. In the story of the lost coin, he tells a story that demonstrates the value of the lost person. The story of the lost sheep demonstrates the helplessness and the hopelessness of the lost person. The story of the lost coin demonstrates the value of the lost person. Many people think that this coin that was lost possibly represented a portion of the dowry of the young lady in the story that lost it partly explained why she was so desperate to find it. And it tells in the story, Jesus tells how she moves the furniture in the house and sweeps under. And, and if you've ever lost something, you've probably done that. You know, you, you know how things can roll under the couch or under uh, the, the piano or the refrigerator or what have you. And you find the, the yardstick or the broom or whatever will fit underneath that item. And you scrape until you scoot all of those, all of that accumulated stuff, you know, and you find things that you didn't realize you had lost, and all of it comes out. If it's at our house, it's a, an accumulation of, of Hot Wheels cars and Lego pieces and maybe loose change and a number of other things. This lady was desperate to find it, and she did everything she could to find that coin, turning her house upside down because it was so valuable 
to her. And then the final story of Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost boy, demonstrates God's attitude towards every sinner who repents. You know the story of the prodigal son who went out and wasted his substance in riotous living. And then he finds himself in the pig pen feeding the pigs and he came to himself. And he said, the servants in my father's house have plenty to eat and here I am wishing to fill my belly with the food that the pigs eat. I will arise and go back to my father's house and there say to him, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just let me come back home as one of your hired servants. And as Jesus tells the story, he describes to us a picture of a father who sees his son coming while he is yet a long way off. God is watching continually for the sinner's return. And like the prodigal's father, when he comes back, he, he sees him from a distance and he runs to greet his son and they embrace and the son launches into his prepared speech. But before he gets very far, the, the father interrupts him and he calls for the servants and, and he says, bring a robe and put on him and put a ring on his finger, which by the way, that ring represents a full restoration back into the family and the right to transact business as one of the members of the family. Put a robe on him, put a ring on his finger, and kill the fatted calf. I heard one uh, individual, I believe with some understanding of, of farming, he said, you don't have a fatted calf by accident. If you have a fattened calf, that's intentional, that's on purpose. And this man surmised that that father was planning for the day when that son would come home and they would be able to celebrate together. And he said, rejoice for my son that was lost has been found. And he offers complete pardon and full restoration and throws a party. Have you ever lost anything? We've all lost something at one time or another. Sometimes we lose things that are quite valuable to us. And in thinking about this, I realize that almost every time we lose something, three things happen. The first thing that happens is you know that thing won't find itself, so you become consumed with searching for it like the shepherd with the 99 sheep still in the fold, no matter what you know you have still, that thing that you have lost consumes all of your attention. You don't say to yourself, well, I still have all of this, and just forget about that thing that's lost. No, you, you get consumed with that thing, and you go looking, you go searching and what follows directly, no matter what you still have in your possession, the item that you lost suddenly becomes more valuable than everything that you still have. Now, it may not be actually 
in reality more valuable than everything you have in your possession, but you treat that lost item as if it is more valuable. Why? Because you have put everything else aside, you've put everything else on the back burner, and you've focused all your attention on that one thing that's lost. And what do you do when you find it? You rejoice because that which you have lost has been found. Oh, friends, God has looked down through the ages of time and seen every person helpless and hopelessly lost. We are separated from God and never will find our way back on our own. So Jesus came to be our Emmanuel, our God with us, who like the shepherd would go searching for the lost one. He is diligent and faithful in his searching because he, he highly values the soul of every man, woman, boy, and girl. He tells us in the scriptures, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? And so Jesus has come to be our Emmanuel to go searching. And I believe, friends, that he desires continually to restore and to reach out until everyone that will respond comes back into right relationship with himself. And that God is just like that prodigal's daddy who saw him coming when he was still a long way off. Like I heard one preacher say, if you, you know, often we hear preachers say things like, oh, if you'll take a step towards God, he will take a step towards you. I heard another preacher say, oh, no, friends. He said, I believe if you will just wiggle in God's direction. He will come running in your direction to get to where you are. Just like that prodigal's father must have looked into the direction his son disappeared and every now and then asked himself, I wonder if this is the day that he will come home. I wonder if this is the day he will return. Friends, when we go off, and leave Father's house, God is watching and waiting for our return. And as soon as He sees us moving in His direction, He runs to meet us. And to that one who has taken the Father's resources and wasted them in fulfilling selfish desires, the Father offers pardon and complete restoration. Now, I don't know, my, my tendency would to be, let's, let's try this on probation and let's see how you do. And if you show yourself trustworthy for a period of time, then, then we'll talk about restoring you. But no, the Father welcomes the Son and gives Him full pardon. I don't know about you, but I miss Paul Harvey. Anybody miss Paul Harvey? And uh, I heard him just... As, as, a, as a young boy growing up, and it's been quite some years since I remember hearing Paul Harvey. Some of you have probably heard this story, but this is a story Paul Harvey told. He said, the man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family and upright in his dealings with other men. 
but he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like too much of a hypocrite, that he'd rather just stay at home and that he would wait up for his family until they returned. And so he stayed and they went to the midnight Christmas Eve service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall, and he went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a noise, a thumping sound, one after another, and he first thought that someone was throwing snowballs against the living room window, and he went to investigate and found that a little flock of birds were huddled miserably in the snow, and they'd been caught in the storm and were in desperate search of shelter. They were trying to fly through his large front room window to find a place to find shelter. He thought to himself he couldn't let those poor little creatures lie there and freeze, and so he remembered their their barn out where the children stabled their pony, and he thought, well, that would provide some shelter for the little birds if somehow he could just direct them in. And so quickly he put on coat and boots and tramped out through the deepening snow to the barn, and he opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds wouldn't come in. He figured perhaps food would entice them, so he got some seed and uh, breadcrumbs, other things, and sprinkled them in the snow, trying to make a trail to lead the little birds into the light and the shelter of the barn. He tried catching a few. He tried shooing them with his arms and walking behind them and trying to herd them, everything he could think of to get them into that barn. But instead of going the direction he wanted them to go, they just continued to scatter in various directions. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but I'm trying to help them. But how? Because any move I make tends to frighten and confuse, and they just wouldn't follow. They would not be led or shooed into the barn because they were afraid. Then he thought to himself, if only I could become a bird and mingle with them and speak their language, then I could tell them not to be afraid. I could show them the way to the safe and warm shelter of the barn, but I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. And at that moment, he heard the church bells begin to ring. And the sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells. And as he heard the Christmas bells singing, he realized the reality, the truth, and the beauty of the incarnation. That there is a God in heaven that realized, no matter how much he thundered from the mountains, 
that he could not persuade men to come to him unless he first came to us to be one of us. And so God revealed himself through Jesus Christ. He came to be our Emmanuel. And oh, friends, I have found him in all times and in all circumstances of life to be Emmanuel, to be God with me in the good times and in the bad. And there have been times, friends, when I did not know what to say. I did not know what to pray other than to pray the prayer of Bartimaeus and simply to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And to know that when that's all I can say, he is present and he hears. We could add to this and talk about how God is our Emmanuel through the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, it is expedient for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to you, who will be with and in you, indwelling you. I believe it was an old Negro spiritual that said, standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find Jesus. He's the only one who knows and understands. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus, and you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. Friends, he is our Emmanuel. He is our God with us, God in flesh, God in relationship, God with us in happy, blessed times, and God with us in pain, and God with us in sorrow, and God with us in lonely times. He is our Emmanuel. Amen. Praise be to his name. Let's stand together. Sing with, we, with me one more time the chorus that we started with, Emmanuel. Emmanuel.